Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the great opportunity that you give us to, to come together with the freedoms that we have here in our nation, the freedoms that you've given us to, to hear and to read your word and to have it in our hands. God, there's so many around the world that don't have that availability, so many that may come for a meeting and never know if the police are going to shut it down and put them in prison. But here we are, not even thinking about those issues. And we just thank you that uh, we can come and uh, worship your name. We can praise you and glorify your name together. Guide us now as we read this, this small book, this letter that you gave to uh, the Apostle John. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So John 3, let, maybe I should turn there as well. That would help things out. <laughs> it starts out with... The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way, their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. I don't know how many of you get personal correspondence anymore these days. A lot of times it's junk mail here, advertisement there, something else that uh, we don't need. But a personal letter written to us is, uh, seems to be few and far between the, the more we get into the digital, digital world. But here it was a little more common, but for a personal letter sent like this to an individual instead of the, the church is, uh, is very unusual. There must have been something, something going on that uh, someone needed encouragement, something needed to be addressed. And that's where these letters come in. All of the letters in the, uh, the New Testament, they're called epistles, actually. They have a specific name because they're not just a letter that's like, hey, how are you doing? I hope you're doing great. Feel good. Get, out, get on with your life. Nothing like that. They always have some sort of a purpose. They're for training and also exposing errors in the truth. And that's what uh, John does here in this little book called Third John. I heard a guy talk about it the other day. He said, you know, we've got... These Johns with multiple eyes, we have a one-eyed John, a two-eyed John, and a three-eyed John. So we're going to be in three-eyed John today, just for you to remember that. As we're reading this and looking at this, it uh, coincides with what's going on over in Uganda. We think about Pastor Wayne being there, 
Kelsey, who's from our church, Brad Young, and uh, others, as they're going from our church to a small congregation there in, uh, well, small, I say small, it's like 300 or 500 that are gathering together this morning, but uh, on a normal basis, it's a small, small church, but they're welcoming them and allowing them to come and they proclaim God's word. Pastor Wayne specifically is going to do that to 40 other pastors to proclaim God's word to them. And the book of Third John is really all about that, that idea, that sentiment, and how that works in the local church. As we think about so many over in that church in Uganda, 300 people in the last 15 years becoming believers as a result of God's work, but using one pastor there, one young woman here in our church and bringing them together and uh, continuing that ministry over these years. They've, the church in Mwanga, they've welcomed strangers, strangers and extended hospitality to people who they had no idea even existed. Even now, when we went there as a family, they welcomed us as though they knew us. They'd been praying for us. They, they had a heart that was the same as our heart, and it was amazing. Because of our common adoption as brothers and sisters in Christ, it allows us to have just this fellowship that happens that occurs across what God is doing throughout the world. So as we've rejoiced with the believers in Mwanga, let's consider missions we don't talk about missions all that often. We have different people come and speak in church, but to speak specifically about missions is a, a great opportunity this morning. And then not only that, but how the local church, how you and me can be involved in what God is doing around the world. We're going to look at God's word together here and see. We've got three different people that are really talked about as we think about how God is expressing what he wants. We want to see what the early church is like. And these three men that are talked about here, we've got Gaius to start out. He is a, a man who walked in the truth, and he, he loved sacrificially for all these people. We've got this other guy, Diotrephes, farther, farther on. He was a man who did not walk in the truth. He rejected it, and he refused to allow others to even love sacrificially. And then we have the final guy, Demetrius. He was supposed to receive sacrificial love because of his faithfulness to the truth, all these guys center around the truth. That's something we talked about a couple of months ago when I, when I spoke last, and uh, we might bring that up later. But it's centered around the truth and what, how they handled the truth, what they did with God's word when they heard it, when they lived it, and when others proclaimed it. And uh, we'll see that here. I'd say several books of the New Testament talk about life in the early church, but this is especially true of this little book as we have an intimate glimpse into the, the life of individuals, just a, a person who's in the church. I could call out Jack. Maybe it was a, a letter written to Jack here, maybe to, to Freddie, and for what they're doing. But uh, it's great as we see how this man is described and shows what happens, how people follow sound teaching and when they don't. So let's look here at uh, verse 1. It seems like a super simple thing. How can you talk for a half an hour on 15 verses? But it shouldn't be too hard. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll look at these guys and what God is doing here. John is the author of this. It's, it's named after him, but we don't see his name anywhere in the book. It talks about the elder, the elder right there. Actually, in any book of John's, we don't see his name. He, in, in the Gospel of John, he's always called the disciple whom Jesus loves. He never mentions himself. In these other areas, he talks about himself as the elder or as your, your father. Here he says, the elder. And it's not just his age, although John was, was very old, but also his position. 
It points to his uh, spiritual oversight over the church. This is after the time of Paul. Paul had already been crucified upside down at this time, according to tradition, and he was out of the picture. John was really the last apostle standing, and just before he was exiled from the church area to this Isle of Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. So he's here having spiritual oversight, but he wasn't just an elder, he was the elder of the church at the time, and he calls himself by that. So everyone in the area, he kind of took over the churches of Paul, you might say, and uh, carried over the oversight for them and cared for these people. But there's this man named Gaius. Gaius. We've got uh, a lot of guys with the same sort of name here in the church. Gaius would have been one of those names. Everybody would have, have that name. We've got uh, several Jacks, several Ricks, several Bobs. A, Mark is a common name. But John, the writer of this, this was a common name. Gaius was a common name like that, used all the time. So we don't know who this Gaius is as a result of his name. If you look through the New Testament, you're going to see three different Gaiuses. And you might think, well, is it this one? Is it that one? But we don't even know. But here's a guy that was faithful in the church, and he's known as a result of his faithfulness to God's word. And that's what makes him important. That is why he stands out. Gaius has three characteristics that uh, hopefully can characterize any one of us as John looks at him here. He's a man who John loves in the truth. He loves as a result of his work in God's word. Verse 2 says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. How many have uh, thought of your health being as good as your soul? That's a, an interesting thought. But he was strong of soul, Gaius would be. His relationship with God was flourishing. And that's what warmed John's heart. So, boy, go up to somebody and say, oh, I wish you could be as strong in body as you are in spirit. That's just a, such a great thought. Normally we think the other way around. I wish your spirit could be as strong as you are in body. It's interesting to apply this to ourselves today. Supposing you look physically like you are spiritually, what would you look like? Maybe a deep thought for the morning, but uh, would you be a robust individual, strong and vibrant, or would you be more kind of tottering around, barely able to move? It's interesting how he can say that here, that this man, he wants his health to be as good as his spiritual health. That's just a, a fantastic statement of what Gaius was doing, what God was doing in and through Gaius. Gaius was that sort of man who the Apostle John could say, I wish your physical life were as strong as your spiritual life. We just, uh, in youth group, we were talking in the book of 1 Timothy, and he talks there. Timothy is told by Paul, you know, your physical training is good for, for some things, but your spiritual training is good for eternal, eternal use. And there's so much more emphasis put on the spiritual training there by the Apostle Paul. Gaius probably heard that, probably knew those teachings. As a church that's almost at the end of the first century that Gaius was a part of, they would have had all the writings of the New Testament at this time. They would have heard and uh, known what the Apostle Paul had said to the different churches. They would have had more than just the Old Testament. And so for him to have a life that is saying his spiritual life is what stands out, get your physical life back up to, up to snuff with where your spiritual life is, is a great thing to say. So to borrow from some other apostles, if you think about Gaius's life, when you think about being spiritually strong, it would say he's, he's sound in the faith, as Paul told Titus. 
He's constantly growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter says in his little book. Maybe you'd even say he's walking in a manner of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Another area where Paul was encouraging the church. But John knew this to be the true testimony of those who had a personal knowledge of Gaius. And he states it in the next verse. He says in verse three, for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Here's a man in a village off in the middle of Asia, somewhere in like modern day Turkey. And then there's John, who's in the church of Ephesus, not, not a day's walk away, not you know, multiple days walks away to even get there. They don't normally even see each other. He might not know Gaius visually if he were to come and, and see him, but he knows who this man is. He knows what his heart is and where his focus is as a result of the testimony of others. It says here, indeed, you are walking in the truth because your brothers came and testified to your truth. How many times have uh, someone come over to your house and they go back and tell tell a friend, wow, this person, this person's walking the truth. They go to another town miles away and say, you know what? If you want someone who's walking the truth, this is the guy. This is what happened with Gaius. The, uh, The people that traveled between the two saw his life and could see that he was walking in the truth and he's commended for it. So his goal wasn't even to just preach the truth or to know that people understand it when, uh, when John writes these letters, but he wants to know that people believe the truth. They love and obey the truth. And he says in verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's true for, for them. That's true for us now. No greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. For John, he could say my children. For me, I say my fathers, my, <laughs> my aunts and uncles. I'm not quite the older man as John was, but uh, to think of that, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Those who heard the word of God and then their lives reflected it to the extent that others knew and could see that. It's a, a great item that uh, John proclaims here. With Gaius, there was no dichotomy between belief and behavior, between profession and practice. Sometimes that happens, but this man, he was a doer of the word of God. In verse four, as I just read, we see that the word truth is mentioned there. It's actually mentioned four times in these four verses. So we talked about truth, what was it, two months ago? I guess it was March 24th, so it was two months ago when I last spoke. We looked at John 17 and how truth is involved, what God is doing with truth. We saw that there's a source of truth that was God himself. There's a foundation of truth, which was God's own words. And lastly, that there is a purpose for truth, and that's our sanctification. I had mentioned uh, maybe remembering a verse, John 17, 17. I'll start it and see if you can finish. It said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That is truth. That is, whenever John is talking about truth, he's talking about God's word being played out in the lives of individuals. God's word is the thing that is at work changing them and causing them to to act in in a certain way. And in this way, he was acting in a way where his spiritual life was so visible to others that they could say, I hope your physical life looks like your spiritual. So he was spiritually strong. Gaius was also sacrificially generous. He wasn't just spiritually strong, but he used that in his generosity. 
Gaius's evidence of God answering the prayer of Jesus, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. That's exactly what was going on in Gaius's life. He was set apart as a result of God working in him, moving him from infant Christian to a believer who's now known by walking in the truth. His life, his own spiritual growth and development is seen, and it's for the benefit of others. It wasn't just himself where he's, you know, growing in a vacuum and uh, no one knows about those things. But verse 5 of John 3, 3 John says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. The apostle spells out Gaius' obedience to the truth as acting faithfully in all of his efforts for these brothers. That's what he did. It was his, his actions spoke to what he believed. Gaius, no doubt, gave them food and shelter and perhaps even money, meeting their needs, even though these, these men were, were strangers to him. Genuine saving faith, such as Gaius's, it always produced good works. Ephesians said, you know, for grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. But it goes on to say, but God has established these works beforehand so that you can walk in them. We're supposed to walk in the things that God has established for us. And that's what Gaius was doing. Here John seems to say that one of the signs that a person has really been genuinely touched by God is shown in their generosity toward others. And here Gaius was taking care of these strangers. And he says that he was faithful in this. That word there isn't just a word that a one-time, one-off, he was faithful once to do it. It's a, this Greek idea that he began it and it's continuing as long as we have known this man. He's faithfully doing something. His faith showed that he was consistent in what he did. He faith, his faithfulness toward his brothers sets Gaius apart as walking in, in the truth. He was probably systematic in his generosity. As the men came, he was faithful. Each time they would come, those who were strangers, he would take them in. And he doesn't just give when emotions moved him, but he planned his giving. He carried it through. He faithfully continued in the work that he had promised. And these guys, they're not even, even brothers who Gaius knows personally, really. They were strangers to him in the sense of, we think of strangers. Well, who are these strange brothers? In the New Testament, that word brothers, it's used over 300 times. Sometimes we think, oh, that's got to be a family with a whole bunch of boys. Maybe it's the bakers. No, it's not. It's not that. It's not just a bunch of brothers. It is nine out of 10 times the brothers describe who we are in Christ. And that as a result of our adoption in him, we are now brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means here. And as I said, nine out of 10 times, that's what it means in the New Testament. We're talking about those who follow Christ, those who God has called, and they called are to be brothers and sisters. And we act like that in a family and uh, can treat one another in that way. So he, as he welcomed these people, he could say, you are my brother because I know you are following Christ. I know that you are in Christ. And they could say the same about him. They were really missionaries, proclaimers of the truth. These are some of the first missionaries that uh, we see as the church has been developed. We saw Paul had missionary journeys just by himself. We see a few others that have gone out, Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas that went together. Timothy kind of went to the church in Ephesus. But overall, we don't see a lot of missionaries. Here in this book, we see that there's, there's men that are coming to proclaim something, proclaim the truth to this church. And Gaius welcomed them. 
The brothers were so impressed by his humble service that they testified to his love before the church. For them to get up, you know, they've got other things to say. They're there to proclaim the word of God, but they proclaim the truth of a fellow brother who is faithful in God's word. It was really consistent with Gaius' devotion to the truth, and he was a model who really contributed to the needs of the saints by practicing hospitality, just as Paul had said in the book of Romans, practicing hospitality. Showing hospitality was a manifestation, an outflowing of his love, his love for people, his love for God, his love for God's word. And he wanted to be generous with that and continue faithfully in this genuine love. John commended him because Gaius didn't only know the truth, but he lived it and played it out. Verse 6, again, it says, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Talking about these brothers that he had welcomed in, John encourages them to send them out again, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. That's a pretty high bar to set. You're not just sending them out so they can skimp along, so they can get to the next gas station or whatever they had at that point, the next uh, food stop, foot washing station maybe. But they were able to send them on a manner worthy of God, something that would provide for their needs, move them to the next, the next place until they could be satisfied again by another church or be cared for in the way God had for them there. John encouraged this man to continue his generous love when other preachers arrived in the future and continue the sending out. He says, you will do well there. Sometimes we're like, well, he's gonna, he's gonna do great. He's gonna prosper. You will do well just means please, please do this. Send them out in a manner worthy of God. He's pleading to him. Don't just let them go. Don't just, you know, let them slide out your door in the morning and send them on their way with a bagel. Prepare for these guys. Allow them to be cared for in a manner worthy of God. The standard is super high. Gaius was to treat them with that standard. He was give, to give to them generously just as God had given generously. He gave his, of his own son for his salvation, gave his own word for their lives. And here Gaius owed everything to a God who had saved him. And he wanted to return that favor both to these men who were proclaiming God and to God himself as he responded in obedience. But there's a great number of you who fit this description here in this church. And I'm so grateful for that, the, the givingness, the willingness. And it's, it's amazing to see and uh, we just want to continue to encourage you along those ways that you will be sacrificially generous in what you're doing. Now let's look at verse 7 and 8. For the local church, this is where missions is really based, what we do in fulfilling the mission of God. We call it missions because it's all these local churches doing this same effort to fulfill God's one mission. And uh, that is here in verse 7 and 8. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that way we may be found fellow workers of the truth. Let me read that again. That we may be fellow workers for the truth. These words describe that first group of traveling missionaries. They went from place to place, and they would enjoy the hospitality of the various churches. They labored as evangelists in that area. They proclaimed in areas where the church had not yet gone, being supported and strengthened by those various churches, various believers. These men who are not in the comfort of their home, they've, they've gone out. They're not there with all their things around them anymore. anymore. They've left things behind. They've changed their priorities and uh, are doing not the work that they had done before, like maybe being fishermen, but now they've become fishers of men. 
they gave up their income often and uh, any of their work. They went out to obey this calling, just as Jesus' disciples did at the beginning. You know, not everyone goes. As you see, you know, Jesus had 12 disciples that were specifically following him. There's 120 that are following and in the upper room after his ascension into heaven, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. It's not a huge number of people in the world that were following after. And those that were believing even that were being active in the way that Gaius is here or that these missionaries were. But that's true now as it is in the early church. There's, God has made a body. We're a body. all have made up of different parts. And at times, someone needs a heart transplant. So we need to send someone who's available to do that to another area. And that's what God was doing with these men. And here, there are some, such as Gaius, who were able to help and support these men who were set out. And there were others to whom the Holy Spirit said, come, come, I've called you to this special task. But our role as a church is to take on those men, those women, those brothers and sisters, that we may be fellow workers in the truth. What's so important that people would forsake their current life for? To go. Well, here it said in verse 7, for the sake of the name. Jesus' name represents all that he is, all that's going on. Their work is the work of God himself for his own glory. Back when the church was being developed, <clears throat> normally this, the name was used as the name for Christ. It would kind of shroud what they were talking about, but yet the congregation, those who were believing, knew what was being discussed. Acts 4, verse 11 and 12, it says, This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the name that these men were proclaiming, the name that was given among heaven, among men under heaven by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus himself. The motive that underlies the church's evangelistic efforts is proclaiming this name for the salvation of the world, those around us. It's really an affront to God when people who do not believe in the name of the Son of God, one who's worthy to be loved, praised, honored, and confessed as Lord. When believers proclaim this good news, though, it's the gospel of Christ. People are saved. People move from being an an affront to God, to being followers and children of him. Concern for a name, it's really been the underlying motive for missions, for missionary work in the first century when this was written, and it ought to be the underlying motive for the church and missionaries even today. You know, it's not, it's not the need of people that uh, calls us into different places into the world to preach the gospel. If you look anywhere, the need is there. There's some sort of need somewhere. Everyone without Christ is in need. But as sometimes the most pathetic cases aren't just the physical needs that we see out there, but those who have everything materially, and they're really wretched in their inner spirit. Jesus, as he looked out on the crowds, he saw that they were hurting and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That could be anyone, as we look out over the crowds, who's out there, they can be hurting and helpless. They're living in a fancy house, but their hearts could be in turmoil. That's where we need to look. Anywhere were those who don't have Christ, his name needs to be proclaimed. But those people that we're proclaiming the word to, they're, they're not normally wanting to give us something to support, like in the form of missions. Say someone goes over, overseas, the cannibals and headhunters in Fiji are not going to give you the financial support, the house that you're going to stay in. 
They don't even want to hear that there's a God other than what they're doing. They don't want to hear that what their lives are is sin and uh, apart from truth. Instead, normally, death comes. And uh, here it says, though, in verse 7, they're accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Most of your Bibles will say Gentiles. Some will say just the nations. It's ethnikos, the, the ethnic people from all around, anybody who's outside the church of God, the pagan world. And it goes without saying that unbelievers aren't going to support those who bring the true gospel, who show that there is something wrong going on in their life and there needs to be change. The traveling missionaries, they depended on the hospitality of fellow believers. If Christians don't support them, no one will. And as Paul explained to the church in Galatia, he said, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith, calling for us to be involved with our, our lives in the sacrificial work of God, calling us to be sacrificially generous. As we continue there, we see the church's role. We've, we've heard all about Gaius, and he takes up most of this little book and uh, most of our time this morning even because God wanted to commend him for what he's doing, and that goes for us. How do we look in comparison to this man, Gaius? He's just a, a common guy in the church. How, how do we hold up with those things? But here he continues to go on and say how we can be involved, how we can play out what Gaius was doing, even in our own lives. It said, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John can't say enough about how to show hospitality to the messengers of the word of God, the need for that. The support here in verse eight, it goes beyond, with an, beyond an automatic withdrawal from your bank. It includes supplying brothers with food and money, like I mentioned before, maybe even companions for their journey. We're sending Cameron out. Hopefully we're sending her out. She's going on her own accord as well, but Cameron's heading out, but we go with her. We send her with whatever she needs. She's been supported by us, and she's going to join others who are already on this mission. We don't know them all. We don't know the, the guy, Joey, who's heading up the camp up there. We don't know the individuals who she's ministering with as a church, but we're behind her and supporting her in this. But it's so that we too may be fellow workers in the truth. We have a, a role as part of the body here as we stay to support those that are going out and proclaiming the name of Christ. Our care for missionary makes us fellow workers for the truth. Our active support of missionaries here leads to active proclamation of the gospel everywhere. As we think, think about graduation, everybody's getting these great titles on the end of their name. Maybe it's just, you know, a high school diploma, but you've got others, you know, a PhD, a THM, LSD, whatever they are, these, all these different things going on behind their names. We've got, uh, what if we were the FTWs, fellow workers of the truth, FWTs, fellow workers of the truth? What if we would have that? God would see us and proclaim to us, you were fellow workers of the truth, even as we're here in our humble town, our humble area. Well, we'd like to all be serving God in some way, but somehow there always seems to be a stick in the mud. And uh, we, we get that here in verse nine, a great stick in the mud named Diotrephes. He rejected the truth and he hindered sacrificial love for these men. This is really the first example in the New Testament of a church boss, someone who was in control of all that was going on and making sure his opinion was the only opinion that mattered. 
Don't try to think of anybody else right now as, as we think about who might be a church boss. This is when God writes his word, it's for us to consider our own hearts and uh, what, we're, what we're doing. One man wrote an article in the Southern Baptist Journal years back, and uh, 25 people unsubscribed specifically because they thought they were talking about them when they described this man, Diotrephes, here. So think, think how this is going. He, was the, he, he may have been an elder, maybe a deacon, even a pastor. It's difficult to tell. But he was convinced that his role was that of telling everyone else in the church what to do. He was guilty of several wrong attitudes and actions. Let's read this in verse 9. I have written something, something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I bring up what he is doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Maybe he's more than a stick in the mud. He's a real, you know, killjoy for everything that's going on, all the progress that the church is having. This guy wants to put a, a squelch on it, just stomp it, stomp it out. John gets right to the heart. Diotrephes, what he's doing, he's putting himself first. As was the case with the devil at the beginning, pride drives people to seek to exalt themselves. That was what was going on here with this man, Diotrephes. There's always been proud, egotistical, self-promoted people who try to usurp authority, try to put themselves first, really see the place of preeminence in whatever is going on. They elevate themselves over others, even God. I know one of the, uh, I think the Santa Clarita group has been going through the book of Colossians for their, uh, their small group. And in there, it talks about in Colossians 1.18, who is preeminent. And it's, it's Christ himself that is preeminent. I'm going to go look that up real quick. Colossians, maybe I'll look it up here. Colossians 1.18 You'd think I'd be able to flip right there, but no. It's going to take 20 minutes now that I want to look for it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There we go. It says here about Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This man in the church wants to do anything, even usurping what God is doing. Christ is the one in everything. He is to be preeminent. That's a great verse if you haven't uh, underlined that or marked that in Colossians 1.18. Such a great reminder of who is supposed to be first in the church. It's Christ himself, not this man, Diotrephes. There's a credible contrast between Gaius and Diotrephes. I think you can see it, probably. The two men were poles apart. Gaius, he was so gracious and hospitable, Diotrephes, ungracious, inhospitable. Gaius loved the truth and loved everyone humbly. Diotrephes, he refused the truth and only loved himself. And then not only that, he threatened everyone who didn't do what he did to get out of the church. The difference between the two men, it wasn't even necessarily doctrinal, but behavioral, the way they responded to the truth. And John here, he didn't rebuke Diotrephes for heresy, for doctrinal issues, but for haughtiness, for pride, for just his, his attitude in the church. Diotrephes, he didn't accept what John had said, and it really indicates just how far he had gone in his arrogance. He was better even in the words of John, this apostle 
who had the authority of Christ given to him to proclaim to these churches. John urged Gaius, do not be like Diotrephes. I urge you, do not be like Diotrephes. Sometimes we think we're going along really well and we get into this mold where we take control or we, we're the only word that uh, is out there. And it can happen. Just, you know, we think we're doing the right thing, but all of a sudden that control is there. Don't let that slip in. Don't let Satan gain a foothold in our lives. But God doesn't leave us there with that stick in the mud. John goes on to tell about an example in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is not from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Now Demetrius, he has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Instead of being like Diotrephes, causing problems in the church, even kicking people out just as a result of serving missions, no, instead, pattern your life after what is good. John's reminder that the one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. It goes back to some of his other letters that he's written, especially 1 John there in, in chapter 2. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We want to be fellow workers of the truth. This man, Demetrius, he was a man of noble Christian character. We don't know anything about him either, but John says from three different sources, here is a man that is an example that can be trusted. Demetrius shows that he was, his man's worth can be measured by his reputation in the community, his faithfulness to the truth of scripture, and even by the report of godly leaders, others' examples who live by the truth. Where truth prevails, the Lord is glorified in the church. Even here in this church that John is, is overseeing, as soon as truth is pushed out, boy, right away, People were leaving. People were being kicked out, and the truth was not being upheld. Instead, God calls us to be fellow workers of the truth, supporting those who come and need help, that are there, not just need help, but are there needing help to proclaim the name to, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. You know, without question, the concept of truth stands out in this brief letter. You know, first believers must know the truth and obey it. Second, they have to be hospitable to other faithful believers who preach the truth. And finally, they are to pattern their lives after godly examples who live in the truth. Where the truth prevails, as I mentioned earlier, the Lord is glorified in his church. How do you show hospitality to other Christians, particularly those who serve you and others in the local church, maybe even churches around the world? Showing hospitality to others, you know, especially strangers, requires it's a level of trust and acceptance Sometimes someone comes and you're like, hmm, I don't know. I don't know about that. But anybody who comes to speak here in the front of church, we've had the elder board normally knows who they are. The, the pastor, Wayne, knows. One of us has, has overseen, just as these missionaries were being sent out, John knew them, the other churches knew them. So there's, we want to trust those who are coming and proclaiming the truth of God, and yet we want to be wise in those things and follow the word of God. There were some even in the time of John, that were coming to teach anything but the word of God. And 
If you read the book of 2 John, it talks all about that, what not to do. Don't support these guys. Don't help them. Don't even allow them into your church. That's something you do even before they get up to speak, that uh, that vetting has been done. But for us as, as individuals, we're supposed to do what we can to love, to show love generously, to care for others, showing hospitality. It really forces us to rely on that common bond in Christ rather than a particular blood relationship or a knowledge of somebody. It forces us out of our comfort zones. It forces us into a zone and a place where we have to put our trust in God. And that continually builds the church and what God is doing. You know, John used words such as love and truth to describe this kind of living. And then he used that negative example of Diotrephes to illustrate the dangers of going down a different path. Don't do it. Don't do it. But we have the responsibility as Christians to live according to the truth and to live a life that is in line with the ministry of Jesus, to care for and to support those who serve God's people. Our Lord was surrounded by people who served him. You know, John teaches us that we're supposed to do the same way should we meet someone who is proclaiming Christ and teaching about him in our day. I named this whole title, you know, an open border policy, but it's open borders for our own home, those who we're allowing in that are proclaiming the truth. I pray that each of us here would be commended for walking in the truth, that we'd have an open border policy among those who proclaim the truth from any nation, any area, and that we'd have open hearts to the scripture. We'd open our home to care for missionaries. We'd open our eyes to see what God's doing around the world in his church and here. Just as John said, I challenge you to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. As we remember Uganda this morning and Rowan with Pastor Wayne there, as we remember the believers that uh, have formed as a result of God's word being out there, that should just encourage us day by day that we want to be fellow workers of the truth. I challenge you guys to think about that. Consider that in your day-to-day life this week, this year, all this time. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about what you have done, how you encouraged this man in the church there that wanted to welcome people, and yet there was that stick in the mud that was trying to discourage and uh, put him out of the church. God, we ask that you would help us to be strong, to be faithful to your word, faithful to serve others who are faithful to your word, that the word of truth and your name would be the focus of what we're doing, and that as a result of those things, your church would just expand and grow and flourish as a result of the name of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the salvation that is in your name alone. And we thank you for that you have given us that opportunity to know and hear these words. In Jesus' name, amen.